Hey, I'm Danny Mazer, and you are listening to the Soul Stories Podcast, an extension of Soul Stories, where we are creating connection through dialogue. In this season, I speak with community leaders and creatives as we explore meaningful topics and the obstacles that they have encountered along their paths. It's inspirational, it's fun, it's complex. Jackson is a teacher, student, and author of the forthcoming literature, How to Read and Understand the World. In our conversation, Jackson takes us through his transformative journey. He finds himself spiraling into a dark period in which he describes being a slave to himself. Then he has a close encounter with death that changes his life. In this profound and meaningful episode, Jackson and I discuss religion, aligning with your path, and whether free will exists or not. This is one of those episodes that will give you plenty to chew on. Here's our conversation. Hi, Jackson. Hey, Danny. How are you? I am good. I have a cup of coffee in my hand, and that is nice. How are you? I'm good. Um, I'm envious of that. I have a cup of coffee in my belly, but the act of drinking it is is almost more satisfying than the effect. All right. You ready to jump in? I am ready. Cool. Jackson, tell me a little bit about your background, uh, where you're from, what was it like growing up? Sure. So I was born in California. Both of my parents are creative types. They were working in Hollywood. They had both been writers. Um, they split up and my mom moved to New Mexico. And so starting at about age six, I would travel back and forth between those two states. I went to high school in New Mexico and would see my dad during holidays and over the summers. And I have a sister as well. So, you know, she did some traveling too, but yeah, grew up in California, transitioned to New Mexico, spent a lot of time in the Southwest since then. You and I know each other from Colorado. Mm -hmm. And how long were you in California for? Before my parents split up, I was six or seven. So it happened fairly quick, but I was there long enough that I got a sense of living in a huge city with all the commotion that that represents. You were in LA. Yeah, I was in LA proper. My dad still lives there. So I still have some familiarity with it. That's super interesting. I had, I actually had no idea your parents worked in Hollywood. Yeah. As I am now, I think it explains a fair amount. Growing up, creativity was really encouraged in my household. My dad, after leaving Hollywood continued to have a creative career in a bunch of different fields. And so not only were writing and speaking encouraged and fine-tuned when I was young, but also drawing. I did a lot of visual art. My parents were super psyched about that. We saw a lot of movies. We have a family that's very into what I think of as literary criticism, you know, analyzing the the film or the book or whatever in terms of its impact and its technique. So it's kind of no wonder either that I wound up becoming an English major, but that's later in our story. So you grew up in a creative household. You're experiencing parents who are like into critiquing it and engaging with it in different ways. How does that impact you growing up? Well, 
It impacted me growing up, I think, because I had a sense from a young age that my voice mattered. Uh, in other words, it was okay to have opinions about things that other people had created. And then in terms of my own creativity, I mean, this is something I really credit my parents with. They were not, they were not too judgmental about it. They just facilitated exploration, you know, and really praised what me and my sister did, what we brought home from school. So I had a sense on the one hand that expressing my creativity in that way was okay and good. And I had a sense on the other hand that I could have lucid and productive conversations about things other people had created. So it really did set me on, on a path of being a creative person, being an intellectual person. That's really cool. For myself, that's something I had to discover later in life, kind of just go on my own journey. So I appreciate that you could get started on that journey so early. Yeah, I do think it's lucky. And as you know, now I'm on the path to becoming an academic. That's not kind of mainstream in my family. Uh, if I do get a PhD, I'll be the first person to do that. But um, my parents definitely valued verbal expression and um, just that kind of lucid way of engaging with the world. So I don't think I'm out of the box in that manner. Mm. What was your primary form of creativity when you were a kid? It changed a lot as I grew up. Something I've believed in at times, I go back and forth with the relevance of this is reincarnation and the idea of an old soul versus a young soul. Interesting. Something people say about old souls is they often remember having uh, many vocations in previous lives and that in the current life, they will take up and put those down as hobbies. So that's a way I've understood how I explored things growing up. For instance, there was just visual art, there was drawing when I was very young. Later on, I made board games. I would share those with people in elementary school, middle school. In high school, I learned how to code and I made some online games. I published some of those to a website called Newgrounds. I discovered writing. I was into that. I wrote fiction, as you know, for a long time. Now I'm more into nonfiction writing. I was in a band in high school as well. So it was really just kind of every direction that I could experiment with, I was dipping my toes in at some point or other. It sounds like creativity as opposed to picking a medium and saying that's your identity. It's like you're expressing yourself in any way you can kind of find. Yeah, and there was an ability to go with the flow too, which has continued to serve me in life. So something I don't think a lot of friends know about me is I applied to Rhode Island School of Design when I was in high school and thinking about going to college. And uh, I don't know, I think, I think this choice says a lot about me because that's, you know, the best and most competitive art school in the country. And it was the only one I applied to. And I was rejected. And I was just kind of like, well, okay, I'll go this different path and went to a liberal arts college instead, you know. So while there was a lot of time put into that, there wasn't investment in the sense that my heart was broken by, you know, that path being canceled. I was okay going in a different direction. So when you say this says a lot about me as a person, what do you mean by that? I can, I can be simultaneously or by turn all in and then comfortable stepping away and doing something different as well. By all in, I mean, I applied to 
the most competitive art school there is, and I didn't apply anywhere else. And then by stepping away, you know, when I didn't get in there, it was okay too. It wasn't like, here's plan B, here's plan C. It's like, I either do this or I don't. Yeah, I guess that's, that's right. There is a desire for me to say that I really tried, you know, I really did put my heart in, in a tangible way. And if it didn't work out well, that's okay. Because at least I know that. Hmm. I want to circle back to talking about believing in reincarnation and being an old soul. (laughs) (laughs) That was a super interesting uh, response to a question about creativity. Yeah, I sneaked it in. (laughs) Yeah, that was nice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, tell us about that. Tell us about that belief. And I think that's super interesting to think about having careers and past lifetimes and them coming out as hobbies. Yeah, yes. Um, You know, I knew, of course, in our interview that I would talk about my childhood and I thought like, well, what, what is really salient for me? What do I really want to get across? And two things came forward. One was creativity, which we've talked about. And the second was spirituality. Both of my parents have always had an interest in that, have always had uh, a proclivity for a deeper consciousness, wanting to explore it through various groups or teachings. And when I was young, that was introduced to me in a very open way. So I know many people's experience with God as a concept was rather restrictive and came through institutional religion, right? And Mm, that was mine. And, and I know that about you. And the, the foundation really does stay with us to some degree, I think, whether we rebel against it or strengthen it or however we choose to respond to it. For me, I was told, we believe there is some kind of higher power or energy, and you can call it whatever you want, and you're welcome to explore what that is for you. And... Um, there was really no judgment about it. As a result, there was a time where I became rather atheistic. And I think that was kind of my form of rebellion against my parents. You know, I'm not going to believe in this at all. But um, they were open to and sharing with me, you know, new age teachings and things like that. So from a very young age, I knew about stuff like reincarnation or collective consciousness just as ideas that some people believed in and that I could choose to believe in if I wanted. It sounds like you had a very, your parents were, had a very open approach to spirituality, which yeah, it seems like it served you pretty well. It gave you some choice and the ability to kind of move through it as you would. Yeah, it was a template within which I could move. It took some time to see it that way. You know, there was a period of time where I felt like they had done me a disservice by being so open and I didn't know how to choose what to believe and that it would have been easier if I was just told. But my thinking now is that really no matter the the background we have, we will come away with some grievances about it. And that's kind of what the transition to adulthood is like, okay, there was there were some gaps. There were some things I wish happened that didn't and vice versa. And how can I alleviate those? We're going to experience those gaps, I really think, no matter the upbringing. 
Yeah, I think I think that's so funny because I have uh, I come from such a strict Catholic background, and I was like, you know, if you would just like let me explore other spiritualities, like et cetera, et cetera, like I would have been off better. And it's like almost the exact opposite language, but it's coming from a similar place. Right. Where for me, I felt since I haven't been told that one thing above others is right, I have no way of choosing. And that became my crisis. To reiterate what I was saying earlier, I think there will be a crisis no matter what. Yeah. Did you have a sense that you were an old soul when you were young? Or is this like looking back kind of thing? Well, when I introduced this, I said, I have believed in it at times in this idea. And I think it has its utility. I think it has its limitations too. What I want to clarify in terms of its limitations is the belief in reincarnation owes a lot to um, Hindu philosophy. And there it's associated with the caste system. So, you know, the Hindus believe that basically people of a lighter skin and a higher class are older souls and people of a darker skin and a lower class are younger souls. And that if you have a better life materially, you have earned that. Where reincarnation becomes dangerous is it can take us away from the awareness that we're all one and that all lives are equally valuable, which is something I also believe. It's useful as a discourse because it helps explain things that we can't explain materially. So as a young child, I was very contemplative. I didn't always go along with the group, even when I was a toddler. My mom tells a story. She would take me to this group called Mommy and Me, um, you know, which was where toddlers were meant to learn to familiarize with one another, with their parents as guides. And um, I would take this vacuum cleaner toy with like marbles inside that rumbled when you pushed it. And I would just push that in the corner. And I, you know, she was like, you were, you were thinking, you were ruminating on stuff in the corner. You know, you didn't want to engage with the group. You had bigger fish to fry. So, um, so for me, yeah, the idea of an old soul can explain those kinds of dispositions where it's like, why was I always so reflective? You know, why even when I was ostensibly a baby and hadn't had any experience, did I already have things to think about, things to mull over? Yeah. So your mom perceived you in the corner contemplating, (laughs) reflecting, were there other instances of this? Did you have like insights at like an early age that you would share with your parents? Yeah, I did. Um, (laughs) She told me about some of these recently, a couple of years ago, she like found some, you know, papers on which she had written down things I said when I was three or four years old. And um, yeah, they were, they were, they were funny and profound at the same time. I was talking about Batman and the Joker. And uh, she said, which is it better to be Batman or the Joker? And I paused and I said, it's better to be yourself. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so yeah, there were others like that, but it's like, where's that coming from? (laughs) Right. Like most kids are like, Oh, it's Batman. And other kids are like, Oh, it's Joker. And an argument ensues. Right. And you sit down and cross your legs and you're like, it's better to be yourself, mom. 
I, uh, I transcended the dualism between <laughs> yeah. Batman and Joker. Damn. At such an early age, Jackson. <laughs> I fell into it later. <laughs> yeah. Nice. I, I'm, I'm glad you asked about that, and I'm glad I got to share that, because as you know, and as I go forward, spirituality really becomes the most salient thing for me. It is, it is only growing. Yeah, so it's good for me to recognize too and to share with others who are listening to this that it was established at a very young age. I think it's good to look back. Like people will, someone was just asking me about my feeling of like, I was expressing my feeling of loneliness and existential loneliness that I have from time to time. And they're like, you know, I don't really know that feeling. And like, you know, talking to me about as if I'm going through a phase and I go, no, I, I've always had this feeling on and off throughout my whole life. Mm. It's interesting to look back and be like, these things that are so a part of us start at an early age in some cases, in some cases not. Yes. I've experienced both phenomena that you just listed, you know, the sense of radical change or awakening, and then also the, the constancy. But I was actually just talking with a friend about this a few nights ago that, you know, we'll get to this later in the story. There, were, there was a period where I went through therapy. I was having a lot of realizations about myself. And shortly thereafter, I, you know, I said, wow, I've changed so much. I used to be a different person from who I am now. Now that I've had some time to let those um, awarenesses kind of simmer and sink in, it's like the qualities that are more expressed for me now were always there. Um, right, right. And, and so I don't think we change very much. I think that our awareness grows. And perhaps when we're aware of our patterns, we move through them more quickly or they're expressed in different ways. But um, the data set that we have to work with, I really think it's kind of there. Yeah, I would agree. It seems to me in the growth process, it's it's more about like trimming the fat than it is about <laughs> than it is about like becoming a whole new person or something. Yeah, I, that's not the metaphor I would use. But <laughs> <laughs> I think I know what you mean. Uh, yeah. Good. Well, hopefully the listeners do too. Yeah, I just thought that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, how does spirituality and creativity interact for you when you're growing up? When I was growing up, you know, I'm not sure they did for a long time, not until very recently. Um, Interesting. When I was young, my creativity was pure. And what I mean by that is it was not self-conscious yet. You know, it didn't yeah. become... You say, yeah, because I'm sure you had the same marker. For me, that begins with puberty and adolescence. Suddenly there's this feeling that if I'm my true self, I'm going to be punished for it. You know, I'm going to go to school and people are going to make fun of me and call me weird. And so... Oh man, that's the worst. And so I have to protect it, right? And that's, yeah. that's what self-conscious art is. It's like, I'm being artistic and I'm being vulnerable, but I also know that I'm doing these things and I'm letting you know that I know that I'm, you know, and blah, 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 which is just a way of creating a barrier. So I would say I've had three phases. One was the unalloyed or raw creativity. 
One was the self-conscious creativity, which led me to a very dark place and was totally without spirituality. And now I'm learning to create from presence and to let my spirituality inform and be part of what I do. You've talked a little bit about the first phase of that and the creativity. Can you talk a little bit about the self-conscious creativity and maybe the dark period? Sure. Um, I like how you say maybe the dark period, so I have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You always got to include maybe as a facilitator. Nice, Denny. Um, yeah, so I have a very specific experience that I tie the, the birth of self-consciousness to, and it's fresh for me because, as you know, I've written a book on teaching and engaging with literature in a certain way, and that's something... I want to talk about later in this interview, totally. but I begin the book with this moment. So I was playing with a friend in New Mexico. We were playing with sticks in my backyard. We were 12 years old, I think, and we were pretending that we were wizards or warriors and we were fighting off demons and protecting this kingdom, right? So we're in my backyard and we're twirling around these sticks and leaping and making noises with our mouths. and. Um, this, this other friend who went to the same school as I did watched us playing from the balcony of his house because we were kind of situated in this valley where he could see us. And um, I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know that we were being watched. But I go to school the next day and he's like, hey, I saw you guys swinging sticks randomly in the backyard. It was pretty weird. And um, that moment for me was was you know, if I think of something that exemplifies the, the dynamic of how self-consciousness is created, that's it. He watched us. He didn't know the context of what we were doing. He didn't give us the credit of the figurative world in which that play existed. So instead, it was just, you know, two loony people twirling sticks. It didn't make any sense. And when he confronted me with that, I internalized that. And I'm not sure I ever played in that way again, you know, because it hurt that yeah. consequence. So I guess what began to happen at that time is I noticed that in school, the person who watched us from the balcony, a lot of what he was acting on was kind of encouraged and was a part of the curriculum. In other words, in school, we learn to criticize. We learn how to form opinions about things that other people have created. We learn how to justify them with evidence. We learn how to make arguments. And my creativity for a long time became bound up in that. It became bound up in being smart through, you know, the breadth of my vocabulary and the arguments I could construct. And so a lot of it started to get channeled into academia. That happened more in college than in high school, but I can really trace the roots of it back to that moment and, and to whatever that was, seventh or eighth grade. Do you think that that sense of creating, you know, argument, critique and expressing that more often than kind of that raw creativity of you in the backyard swinging sticks? Do you think that <laughs> do you think that has something to do with a defense mechanism? Oh, of course. In the way I laid it out, there was a physical hurt, right? You feel it in your body when someone yeah. says, you're weird. And I think on the evolutionary level, it's the fear of being extradited from the group, which means that we'll die. 
if I am seen as too far outside the norm, I will be abandoned and I will starve to death. That is in our blood, I think. So I think we cultivate then these habits of criticism to protect ourselves and we begin to look inward and to introspect less and less. And we start to look outside ourselves more and more for uh, really targets to criticize. And um, again, I don't want to come across as though academia is some, you know, atrocious evil. I don't think it is. But I do think it's out of balance in that it encourages these habits and diminishes that raw creativity that we're talking about. Yeah. I don't want to criticize it either. I just think it's so, I think there's something so special about that, that childhood innocence where you're just, this is what I want to do. This is what I feel. This is what I'm going to imagine. And as you have said in several different ways, it's just, it's discouraged in adulthood and it's, and it's not like that's how we want to express ourselves now, but like, there's a way to channel that and it's even discouraged to channel that energy, you know? Yes. Although there is a way of merging the two. And that for me has become what I think of as adult expression or adult creativity. I mean, in the way I'm relating these early experiences to you, yeah, it's almost like play acting, right? I am speaking about myself and embodying that experience as a character but I'm doing so in a vulnerable way. I, in other words, I am intentionally sharing myself and putting myself at risk of judgment. Yeah. I think once we realize the negative consequences of not doing that, in other words, not being vulnerable, losing that intimacy, that connection, then we become able to do it intentionally. And that for me is, yeah, what adult creativity or expression can look like. What have the consequences of that been for you? of not expressing vulnerability. This does get into the dark period. So this takes us to college. I went to Colorado College, which is a private liberal arts college, and I majored in English and I minored in philosophy, so I'm still whole hog into the, you know, contemplative aesthetic. At the beginning of that experience, things were pretty good. I, I really think my first two years, I mean, you know, I had stuff with my parents' divorce that I was processing and I was trying to find love and striking out, but I was still in touch with my creativity. An experience that in retrospect I've noticed as really significant is I think between my sophomore and junior years, I did a course in Mexico with a philosophy professor, and it was called Globalization and Philosophy. You know, and as a white person in the U.S. going to a private liberal arts college, I very much lived in the bubble. And so it wasn't until this course that I both saw real poverty for the first time and understood its connection to the life I was living. I became aware of my situation as a U.S. citizen within the global economy. And I came to hate myself, honestly, for the damage that I felt I was doing to other people just by existing. Mm. Um, these earlier experiences of, um, you know, of bullying or self-consciousness had kind of started me along that path. Uh, this was really the moment where it crystallized and I felt I don't deserve to be happy. The world is too dark. There are too many people suffering. 
and who am I to kind of lead a full life? So that was the start of what became the darkest period of my life. I don't think I was really happy from that moment for another three to five years. Um, do you want me to just continue along that vein and tell you kind of when it came to a head or do you have another question about it? I'd like to continue in. I just want to point out that thank you for sharing that. I think that is probably something that people listening right now have experienced recently, maybe this year, maybe the day they're listening to it. Um, so thanks for kind of expressing that vulnerability. I feel like that might impact people. Someone said art's purpose is to disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. And I think of that when I listen to your podcast and I hope that sharing my story can do one of those two things as well. Oh, that's beautiful. My reaction to that was really to intensify my commitment to academic expression or what you and I have been calling the critical mindset. I felt I live in this world where people are suffering and my material wealth is connected to their suffering. And so I don't believe I deserve to be happy. Well, what am I going to do? I'm going to become basically a workhorse so that anything good I experience, I can convince myself I've earned. And so I really bent into my studies, you know, 110%. And after I graduated, no matter what job I was working or what else I was doing, I was writing fiction all the time. In my free time, I was reading relentlessly and trying to expand my vocabulary. And I think really on the spiritual level, the way it's almost like I was my own slave, you know, like I was doing this work regimen in order to prove to myself all the time that I was worth my materially beneficial existence. When I graduated from college, I, um, I co-taught and I substituted at my old high school for a year. And then I went to um, Ecuador and I taught English as a second language there for another year. And this whole time, I would wake up early every single morning and write for a couple of hours. And I would read in the evening and I was trying to teach myself German because I thought it would be uh, more impressive or more worthwhile or something if I could speak three languages rather than two. Uh, that is impressive. <laughs> well, I, didn't, <laughs> I did not achieve that end, but, <laughs> but I forgive myself now. So it really became this individualistic, work-oriented existence at that time with things like relationships viewed as a mark of weakness, you know? My desire to reach out to others or to have romantic involvement, those became viewed as signs that I wasn't finding sufficient fulfillment in my work or something like that. My view of the world became more and more narrow. And if there's a single time in my life when I really lost touch with my spirituality and who I consider myself to be at core, it was that time. It was those years. So when does that transition uh, begin? When you start to leave those, the, I guess, the quote unquote dark period? Yeah. It's funny. Like, uh, <laughs> the, the, this this dark period segment is going longer than I thought it might when um when I had imagined us having this conversation. It was years long, you know, and um 
it's useful to remind myself sometimes now if my life feels so much more joyous and I feel so much more of a sense of purpose that that is really as a result of having experienced those years and having something with which to contrast these current experiences, right? I think that's important to remember because sometimes I find myself when I'm in a good place and people around me are expressing frustration or like they're stuck and I start to judge them. I, I feel like sometimes I have to go back into that and be like, Oh wait, like I'm, I'm barely in this place compared to how much I didn't feel good. Right. And even in the quote unquote good place, there are still problems. There are still projects. Um, that's something I've more and more come to terms with recently. You know, I used to think if only I can become famous or successful or have a stable relationship or whatever the objective was that my unhappiness will go away. And now there's just more comfort with that being a condition that, like we were talking about earlier, doesn't really change. With awareness, maybe it loses its grip on us, but that, that's kind of how I approach it. When I experience those contrasts or those desires to judge, it's like, you know, I still have the darkness. It just comes and goes in a different yeah. way with awareness. Yeah. I find it easier, maybe not easier, but I find I can move through it quicker than Same. I previously could. Same. Which, what a gift. And maybe we'll talk about that too. Hey all, it's Danny here. If you like what you are hearing, please consider supporting us through Patreon for as little as $1 a month. You get access to bonus podcast content and help us build the movement. You can find a link in the episode description. Now, let's get back to the episode. The moment where the transition really began for me, uh, this is something else I had planned to talk about because, again, it's, it's in my book. It's, it's in the introduction of my book. So when I returned to the U.S. from Ecuador... I was tutoring writing at Colorado College, which uh, was my alma mater. So I did that for a year. And I was still very isolated. I was still writing every morning before work and reading in the evening. I was exhausted all the time. I didn't really have friends. I didn't date anyone. I didn't know what I was doing or why. And um, something very, something dark and violent happened. Um, I was living not going to share any of the people's names in this story in order to protect them. I was living with this woman in a house near campus and I left for the weekend. It was Halloween weekend of 2015 and um, I went to Denver to spend that weekend with friends and um, I came back and she had sent me these cryptic texts like when you come home, there might be police and or reporters outside. Please don't talk to anyone. And I'm like, what's this about? You know, oh, is everyone okay? Yeah. Um, I get there and there were police and reporters and she had vacated the house. She wasn't there. And there's caution tape across the street and what looks like blood on the asphalt. And, you know... I, I use my phone, I use the internet to investigate what's happened in Colorado Springs that day. 
And the man across the street from us came out of his building with a rifle and he shot the first person he saw, which was a biker. My roommate was looking out the window of our house uh, when this happened. She saw that person die. Um, he walked up the street, the, the shooter, and he killed two other people who were women at this halfway house. And then he continued toward a, a school that was a few blocks from that. The cops showed up. There was a shootout with him. He was killed. So technically, it was a mass shooting because four people died. Given what's happened in our country since, most people wouldn't even blink an eye uh, at something of this scale, which you know, says something about the, the magnitude of this issue and this theme. Totally. But, um, but yeah, it was very disturbing to me, right? I, had I been there, I could have been killed. Of course, that crossed my mind. And only because I was away was I not um, physically traumatized, right? Did I not see the violence myself as, as my roommates saw it? So... I don't know. I'll explain in a moment how this really helped me turn a corner in my life, what a kind of wake-up call it was to me. But um, I wonder if you have any questions about it first. No, I'm totally in the story. Yeah, I mean, I was traumatized. I had what I would now call PTSD. You know, walking around campus after that, I would have images of a shooter in the trees or in buildings. I would feel hair on my neck stand up and think I'm going to be killed. Um, I stayed in the house for maybe a week after that happened before I was able to arrange to live elsewhere. And um, it was a very haunted space for me. I, I've never seen this roommate again. Uh, she had a parent come and pick up her things from the house. Um, so yeah, we, you know, we, I think we spoke once and that was that. And what really became what really started to dawn on me and really started to unnerve me is the connections between the shooter and myself that I didn't share in my initial telling of the story. Um, not only did he live across the street, he had also previously lived in the same house that I was living in. He had dated my roommate that used to be an item. Wow. And, and when he lived there, the room he rented from her was my room. So I was sleeping in the same bed that this man who had dated my roommate had slept in. Uh, they split up. He moved across the street. He went off the deep end and he wound up killing people. And just these resonances between our identities really got me asking, how different am I from this person? And the only reason I pose it that way is how isolated I was at the time and how invested I was in my mental pursuits and proving myself smart, which often meant dismissing the opinions of others and breaking off relationships. So when that man did those things and was so close to me physically and symbolically, it really presented me with a picture of where this kind of life goes. The highly individualistic, highly competitive, mentally violent and spiritually detached form of life. I saw his outcome as kind of an outpicture of where I could head or where academia or where our culture more broadly was heading. Wow. Yeah. That 
is such an, I mean, it gives me chills listening to it and being able to find yourself in him also takes a level of courage to even make that connection and to give yourself space to be like, Hey, this could have been me in some alternate form. How do I avoid that life? Cause I don't want it. Yeah, I appreciate that. And you know, I've shared this story with people and my conclusions and had them say, uh, don't do that to yourself. Don't compare yourself with a person like that. You know, he's a monster. You're Jackson. We love you. Um, for me, the patterns that I saw in him, I saw in myself also. And yeah. as you and I have discussed, I'm not sure those patterns change, but we can become aware of them and we can help to dissipate them so that we no longer have to live from them. We kind of regain our freedom. Have you heard the Thich Nhat Hanh poem um, where he, he talks about, it might be called I am or something, but in it, he makes a statement like I am the rapist. Mm. And he makes these really intense like comparisons. Like I am the butterfly I am the cocoon breaking open. I'm just making these up, but (laughs) I remember specifically him drawing this line between these really beautiful things and these really destructive things and how he, how he can find himself in all of it. Yeah. And we don't want to say that, right? We experience kind of an inner retaliation to that or revulsion to that. But it is my experience that, Personal healing cannot be achieved without those admissions, and I think societal healing as well. I think we have to look at what we perceive as the other and say, you know, one of my favorite books is I Am That by uh, someone whose full name I can't pronounce, but um, he was an Indian guru. And um, we have to be able to, in earnest, uh, speak that phrase, I am that, I am that which I would criticize or dismiss, or in this case, kill. I am the other. So that's kind of where my spirituality has evolved. From this moment of the shooting, what became evident to me was that I needed help and I needed to invest in relationships. I wasn't really conscious of these things at the time, but they were both what I started doing. So I sought out a therapist I don't know. You and I saw the same therapist. So I think your listeners, I don't, I don't mind if they know that. I mean, you're, you are the inspiration for me seeing that therapist. And there was one for me as well. There's a, there's a long lineage (laughs) (laughs) of our friends. (laughs) Um, You know, I want to say something about that before we get into that. Go ahead. As I said earlier, it does feel important to me to protect people's anonymity where possible. And when I listened to your episode on your podcast, you spoke of me by name. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Thanks for calling that out. Did, did others mention that as well? Uh, no, I, I'm not sure who's heard it. Um, the people who have heard it that have talked to me about it don't know who you are. Um, so I'm curious if people who do know who you are have listened. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a dual reaction when I, when I heard that on the one hand, I thought how heartening to know that I inspired Danny, right? We often 
don't get that kind of feedback from the world and, and know that, that we do serve as inspirations for others. But I also felt now I don't have the freedom to tell my own story, right? Because it's already been told for me. Um, so I don't begrudge you in any way, but it is a principle I'm learning and trying to practice in my life to avoid telling others' stories for them and the telling of mine. And um, yeah, I had a little bit of that reaction when I listened to the podcast, like, well, geez, now I don't have a choice as to whether I talk about this. It's already out there. Well, thank you for stating that. I think that is something I struggle with and something I do need to work on, especially as I get more and more into this, this kind of work where people can hear what I say and the stories I, I speak. So I appreciate that. Yeah, it's, it's been a learning for me as well. So I, I continued to work as a teacher and as an educator. I continued to write. But during this period of my life, starting about age 25, I also went to therapy and I also was having more experiences dating women because I really wanted to resolve what felt like another major and inner struggle in my life, which was that I was afraid to have committed relationship. I didn't know how to have a committed relationship. And really the undergirding fear was that I would do what my parents had done. I would get married, have children, and then divorce. And the cycle would repeat. And I didn't want to do that to my child, right? So these became less and more conscious pursuits. How do I heal myself? How do I learn how to have relationships? Really for a couple of years and work kind of faded into the background. So you're going on this kind of militant pursuit of work, it sounded like just prior to this. What is, how does, how does work fade into the background for healing to begin? It's a deep question. Um, so I should first put out the caveat that I'm an extremely productive person. So even when work is faded into the background, I do a hell of a lot. <laughs> and there are people who regard me as type A, no matter what I do, right? So it's all relative. What I began to learn to do in therapy was feel into my feelings, feel into my body, and ask myself what I really wanted. You know, I described my prior life as me being a slave to myself and having to do this work regimen every day. I really began to ask myself, what do I actually feel? What do I actually want? And I began to learn to trust that. And it is my finding that we do not authentically want to work as much or in the ways that our society requires us. There is a healthier balance to be found. And I try to live that now with, um, with my fiance. To anyone listening to this, the story does have a happy ending in terms of relationships. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so yeah, for me, it's, um, it's that self-trust and self-love that can be formed through a, a productive relationship with a therapist, which then leads us to a different distribution of work and other aspects of life. I mean, what's, what's your experience in that regard? I know that you work full-time and you also have this as a, a very significant project. Yeah, I think that what really struck me was that we don't, and I, maybe correct me on how you word it, but we don't want to work as much as we're kind of told we want to work. How, how did you phrase that? 
That's pretty close. Um, I think it's quality over quantity in my finding. You know, I don't really need to be productive for 50 or 60 or more hours per week. I just want to do something that feels meaningful. Yeah, I agree. And I think to speak to my experiences before when it was really a pursuit of like value for myself, like when I work, I have value kind of thing. Um, yeah, I found burnout. I found exhaustion and the, the switch in perspective of working as, I don't know how to quite put it, but now it's like, okay, I want to reach this goal and I know I need to do these things. And once I do those things, I don't necessarily need to add more things to the plate, which I might've done in the past. Like if I record two podcast episodes today and then I know that I have the rest of the day to work if I want to, but I don't need to get anything done. In the past, I would have spent three or four hours working afterwards, but today I'm like, nope, I'm going to go relax. Right. Yeah. I remember being at this event one time, this monthly dinner at a, at a house where I lived for a while. And, um, someone was presenting and asked us the question, how do you celebrate yourself? Reflect on that. And I thought, I don't know how, I don't know that I've ever done that, you know, and it was (laughs) kind of a startling realization. And so now, as you say, there's the ability to relax, to buy myself something like a coffee to treat myself, um, just to be kind to myself in those ways. And similarly, yeah, the goal is no longer to prove that I deserve to be happy, which is what I was using work to do, but it's to do something that I want to do. And I, I just try to live into that more and more. It's crazy how simple of a shift it is. Cause I feel like listening to this right now, it seems so like, Oh, I did this and then this, but the, the actual transformation of going from that perspective to the other it feels like it takes a lot of emotional labor. I think that's, well, I know that's true. Um, (laughs) I know that's true. Um, And I also think, you know, if my experience is any indication, it can take violence and suffering and hardship. And these things can last a long time. A mentality I had, especially when I first started going to therapy, was that we need to fix ourselves. And this became for me only another domain of achievement. You know, how quickly can I heal? How healthy can I demonstrate myself to be? And I really think now experience is the teacher, experience is the healer. We don't really need to do anything. And when we are ready, we will make the shift, right? I mean, there were three to five years between the course I described in Mexico and the shooting that was really kind of a, a game changer for me. And um, both of those experiences happened to me. I didn't do anything. But you did make the active choice to do something with that experience. I suppose so. This is where spirituality re-enters the equation for me. So the way I described therapy, right, the fundamental goal and outcome was reacquainting myself with my feelings, reacquainting myself with my desires. However, it's my experience that once we do that, once we really get into our bodies, the individual self begins to disappear. I notice that 
my body is composed of the same elements as the objects around me and as the bodies of the other people around me. I notice that myself is a story I tell myself and that really there's just this one swirl of matter kind of pulsing in the universe. And so even the choices I ostensibly make, like the choice to see a therapist or move to Wisconsin to go to graduate school, which I've now done, they become for me ways in which I am moved and positioned by this larger being that I'm maybe a molecule of or something like that. So of course I still experience choice in the day to day realm. You know, I ask myself, what do I want to do? Uh, should I do this? Should I not? But, um, after the fact, I always feel like I was moved and I just try to surrender to that. Now, this might be a little tangential, but do you believe in free will and choice? Uh, it's not tangential for me, and I'm comfortable saying no. <laughs> I believe that we have the experience of free will and that it's very central to our identities, but on the absolute level, I don't believe that's what's exercising itself. This is funny for me, by the way, because there were years where I felt that it was incumbent upon me to like prove that free will existed in a philosophical way. I was very, very scared of not having control. <laughs> so I've kind of done a 180 there. What do you think? I think that's a, a tough question. And yeah, <laughs> I've gone through periods where I have a hard time answering it. A lot of questions don't scare me, but that question kind of scares me. I'll tell you why it's scary. It's scary because the two stories that, in my opinion, we most like to tell ourselves, they both disappear without free will. One story is the victim story. My, my life has been so hard. I can't do X, Y, or Z. It's not within my power. Things are happening to me. The other story is the hero story. You know, I've conquered so much. I'm such a badass. Look at me. Both of these stories rely on free will and either the ability to overcome or the absence of the ability to overcome hardship. The hero story is a kind of victim story in that we're still saying things have been really hard, whether or not I've conquered them. And without free will, stuff's just happening. You know, there's not a self to feel like a victim or feel like a hero anymore. We're just rolling in the tide. And what do we have to talk about then anymore? Most of what we talk about is things we're trying to do or things we have done. <laughs> yeah, might as well just cut this interview off. <laughs> yeah, the whole, no, no, the whole story disappears. It's very true. <laughs> How do you have responsibility for your actions in a world where there's no free will? You know, I just submit to what it seems to be mine to do. And... I don't ask myself anymore whether it's good or bad or right or wrong. It is my finding that I don't want to harm other people because I want to cultivate healthy relationships and I want to do good. And I don't want to insult other people because I feel compassion for them and I would feel badly if I did that. So I just kind of step into this trust. I recognize why this is very scary for people because much violence is committed in the name of religion. There are a lot of people following their gods who nevertheless do things that disturb us. 
but I can't say anymore that I'm responsible for what I'm doing in that way. I'm, I'm just listening and choosing to surrender again and again and again. And when you may come across situations where you hurt people or have problematic interactions, whatever problematic may mean in this context, is it like, hey, I'm sorry, I recognize I did this. And then you can go back and let go because you're not fully attached to that action? I see what you mean. I don't think it's any different from how people without this orientation would apologize in that moment. From that person's perspective, it was still me, Jackson, who chose to do the thing that harmed them. And that's how I accept the onus for it, you know? And that does happen frequently. I mean, uh, and it's another instance of listening and openness to me. Uh, Oh, what is being presented to me through this person that might refine my practice and my identity as a human being? Uh, Other people can be the vehicle for me of these spiritual realizations or movements. Interesting. It really feels like a overall letting go and just acceptance. This is the goal. (laughs) Um, Well, you did it, Jackson. uh, (laughs) You accomplished it. I don't think so, but uh, I appreciate the undertone of the joke. Um, (laughs) I love that. I do want to, I mean, if we're telling a story about a self I may as well tell a story with a happy ending. Yeah, let's hear it. So I would like to finish what I planned to tell of my story. Um, And it links to what we're talking about because it has a lot to do with surrender and with letting go. So the whole last year I was living in Denver, where you live, I felt that I was not supposed to be there. In a spiritual way, I felt... There is somewhere else I'm meant to go. There is something else I'm meant to do. And I don't know where it is or what it is or why, but I was very sure of that. And the experiences in my life seemed to confirm that. I dated around that year. I worked a ton of jobs. Nothing seemed to click. It was very messy for me. Around spring of 2018, I started thinking about applying to grad school. This is something that represented a a big conundrum for me because of the feelings about academia I spoke about earlier and how these habits of criticism, of analysis can be very corrosive to our relationships and our sense of self. But nevertheless, I started to feel this impulse, I'm meant to go. This is something that's part of my destiny, if you will. Around this same time, I had a dream, which turned out to be a prophetic dream. I had a dream. I see this short, bright-faced, red-headed woman, and I knew that she was a nurse. And I wake up kind of sitting upright in my bed saying, that's my wife. And I remember telling my roommate about this. I'm like, had this dream last night. Seems like I'm supposed to marry a red-headed nurse, you know? (laughs) And uh, we're both like, this is bizarre. But just rolling with it. I had a roommate who was very open to these mystical experiences and to their messages as well. I was online dating. I started looking for people who fit the description. You know, I was like, I've got to date a redheaded nurse and like, see how it is. So I was like looking for people in medical school and stuff. It was stupid. It didn't 
work at all. At the same time, I went ahead and followed my impulse and I applied to grad school. I applied in curriculum and instruction, which is the field I'm in. It's a subset of education. And I applied in the summer and there were only a few schools among the ones I wanted that accepted rolling applications. So in other words, where I wasn't already too late to apply. And so I applied to those schools, luck or virtue or whatever, I got into all of them. So I had a choice. And um, one was University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I'm now enrolled. And as soon as I saw the email telling me that I'd been admitted to that school, again, just a gut impulse, a knowing, I said, that's where I'm going to go. I'm supposed to go there. I'd never been to Wisconsin before. I moved here, only have had one friend here. It was a very kind of disconcerting experience to leave the social scene that I was a part of in Denver. And um, I'm sitting at this coffee shop, which is around the corner from my apartment about a month after I moved here. It's a very busy day in the coffee shop. And uh, there's only like one seat open in the whole place. And it's the seat across from me at this tiny table meant for two. I'm sitting there, I'm working on this application. And, uh, and this woman goes, may I sit here? And I look up and I just felt the sensation of like joy and like ecstasy almost. I mean, ecstasy in the sense of like a nervous joy, you know, like something divine occurring, something really overwhelming. And uh, I said, sure, you can sit here, you know, and we started talking. We talked for a few hours. Just, the conversation was just very natural. I learned she was a nurse. However, she was not redheaded. She had blonde hair. But I had an instinct about this. And I went home and I Facebook stalked her. I don't care about saying this now because of how the story turns out. It doesn't really <laughs> matter anymore. And uh, sure enough, I see her profile picture. She's a natural redhead. Her hair was dyed blonde. And um, her name is Allison, and we're engaged. You know, we're going to be married next year. And so these experiences, kind of moving to grad school and how things started to lock into place for me there, and meeting this woman that I had literally had a dream about meeting about six months prior, these have really confirmed for me this orientation that we've discussed about surrender, trusting the intuition, trusting the higher self. I just feel comfortable doing it for the rest of my life, really deepening that commitment. Wow, that is incredible, Jackson. I had never heard that part of the story that you had that dream. And it's cool to hear that you were kind of on this like journey for confirmation bias a little bit where you're like, oh, I had this dream, this is going to happen. And you pursue it, pursue it, pursue it. And then as you mentioned, you kind of let go of it. And all of a sudden, it just finds you. Right. And that is my experience of how so many things happen in life. I mean, going to graduate school was like that for me, too. You know, I remember feeling when I was in college that I would make a good professor, that that's something I would like to do. And then I kind of hid from that for the next five years. I did everything but that. And finally, it just kind of came up. You know, I was angry about it. I felt like, I don't want to go to grad school. It's long. It's expensive. It represents belief systems I don't necessarily agree with anymore. But there was just the surrender, you know. And sometimes it's more out of fatigue for me than anything else. I'm just too tired of fighting it anymore. But I do find that 
when I give in and I go, there are these experiences that confirm the alignment. You're in the right place. You're doing the right thing. Things begin to flow. Mm, I love that. I love that intuition that you just are with. And I, I remember moving to Denver and I remember like when I was 16 telling all my friends, I'm going to go to California. I'm going to California. I'm going to California. And one of my friends, it was like senior year. It was already November. I hadn't even, I hadn't applied anywhere. And I was like, Oh man, like I feel like I'm, I'm not doing what I said I would do, which is go to California. And a friend walked up to me and he just goes, uh, Hey man, like we were in a conversation. He's like, you ever been to Denver, et cetera, et cetera. And he's like, I think you'd, I think you'd really fit in there. And then it was the craziest thing where I was like, Oh shit, I think that's where I'm going to go. And then I got here. And as soon as I landed, I was miserable. I was isolated. I was alone. (laughs) And I remember feeling like this is my home. This is where (laughs) I'm supposed to be. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and that knowing, um, can smooth over the disconcerting aspects of an experience. So, I mean, grad school is no cakewalk, you know, it's, it's a lot of difficult work. I'm running around all the time. I have a TA ship plus multiple classes plus a part-time job. It's, it's crazy. And a lot of what's going on in the classes, I don't necessarily connect with, you know, there are times where I think this isn't really me, but I just tune into that base knowing underneath it all. And I know I'm supposed to be here. I'm on the right path, even if superficially it's not perfect. So again, just learning to trust that and think it's part of what I'm here on earth to teach others to tap into, to be honest with you. Mm. Let's, uh, Let's talk about that. What are you here to do? What are you working towards right now? Sure. Um, well, I want to say one thing first, which is, you know, I've written this book on literature that I alluded to earlier, and I wasn't sure as we were wrapping up the previous segment of the interview whether we should talk about that, you'd like to talk about that, or whether I should just kind of like plug my website and the interview be a story of my life. I can talk about that. I can talk about what I'm doing in grad school right now. What do you think about, about these ideas? Yeah, I love it. I, I think, uh, talk about what feels right to talk about in this conversation. I knew you would say that to any. <laughs> <laughs> it's that under, underneath knowing Jackson, you just got it, you know? It's true. I do not feel compelled to talk about my book project right now. I will give a very brief summary of it and I will talk about what I'm moving into in grad school because that represents a longer term and still growing project for me. So I've written a book about engaging with literature in a way that really helps us recover that naked childish attribute of playing as characters in works of fiction. It helps us recover that and it helps us see that through that experience, we gain principles of wisdom, which can inform and improve our adult lives. As I've said in the interview, it begins with my experiences 
you know, receiving verbal bullying as an adolescent and beginning to feel self-conscious and the experience of the shooting, which really epitomized for me the tribulations of the totally individualistic, totally atheistic lifestyle. So it begins with those and it charts my life story using literature as a source of reflection through the point where you and I have ended this interview, which is I'm engaged to be married. I feel in the flow in my work. I feel like I'm in the right place and know who I am. It helps readers tune into literature to get the same benefits for their own lives. And I have a website which people can check out to learn more about this. It's called jhbliterature.com. So in brief, that's a project that I've been working on and I'm currently promoting the book, but it's not what I'm doing in grad school. What I'm doing in grad school is really trying to see how spiritual principles and how intuition might factor into and support secular education. It's kind of an intoxicating area for me because people who send their kids to secular schools, uh, in other words, not religious schools, they don't want anything, having anything to do with religion in that environment. And what I'm talking about and what I'm thinking about is that these modes of intuition and of listening to greater bodies of knowledge can guide us in ways that are relevant even for people who don't believe in God or would not subscribe to a religion. I'm wondering if there's a place where that can factor into education, say late in high school, when, when people begin to make significant decisions about their lives. Are there ways we can guide them to feel into their bodies, feel into their higher callings, and pursue those even where they don't seem to make logistical sense? So that's kind of what I'm moving toward as a second year grad student who isn't supposed to have big ideas like this yet, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, uh, do you have a hunch? Do you have like some hypotheses you want to test out? Yeah. Um, it'll probably have occurred after the time this interview airs, but um, in the coming weeks, I'm going to be doing some interviews with people about, experiences using religion to navigate ambiguous situations, much like I've used faith to navigate transitions in my life. And what I'm hoping to distill from those interviews is a set of principles or ways of being that these people are employing when they navigate these situations. So that with those principles isolated, I could then try to teach them to students. And that would be its own form of test. Like, can this be converted into a curriculum that students could learn that could facilitate a greater ease of transition in their lives? Because there will be this kind of knowing that you and I have spoken about. Can you give me an example of something you might mean? <laughs> something uh, in, in what sense? I guess just an example. Yeah, that was a poorly worded question, but can you give me an example of what you were just talking about? Um, so like, I've already done one of these interviews and I did, I did an interview with a Muslim friend and um, he spoke about how Islam contains principles of right practice. And if one follows these principles, one will attain a happy hereafter is how he phrases it. 
one will enter paradise upon one's death. Those principles and that faith give him an ease of being in his life so that even as he navigates bureaucratic and stodgy systems like grad school or, you know, he's, uh, he's a foreigner um, working in the U.S. on a visa, as he navigates things like that, he has this faith that guides him even in the absence of rational measures of knowing. He gets that from his religion. But what I'm wondering is, are there ways of talking about that skill set that even secular students, say even at the high school level, would be able to glom onto, that they would be able to learn from? Because for me, it really has been life-saving. I would not be where I am. I would not be with the person I'm with. And I would not be who I am without this ability to move in faith. Wow, that's so cool. That I love that because so often people who are anti-religious, as you mentioned, want nothing to do with it. And it seems like you're advocating for some balance to figure out how we can get the fruits of these spiritual practices that have been around for so long. Yeah, and I like to break apart binaries in general anyway. That's part of who I am. I like to look at divides like that and ask myself what's underneath and what can each side offer the other it's it's a disposition that i think in terms of my material life might have something to do with my parents divorce you know this deep desire to reconcile opposites in the way that i once wanted my parents to get back together but um it also stems from buddhism which is a big thing for me buddhists are all about you know, here's a paradox, here are two apparently irreconcilable opposites, and let's see how they're both true. So that's a terrain or a pattern that I really like to work within. And this even points back to what you were talking about with Batman or the Joker, too. <laughs> you have a great memory. I... <laughs> even I'd forgotten about it. Uh... That should be the title of this episode. I think that's true. Batman or the Joker, be yourself. Just be yourself. Yeah. Well, I'm feeling things drawing to a close. Um, I've really loved talking with you, and it's helped me be- become more comfortable, I think, with myself and my story. You know, I, I don't know if listeners will be able to tell, but first few minutes, I was definitely nervous and then I then I kind of got into a groove and now I feel like I'm just talking about my life and my beliefs with Danny Mazur. Well it's been awesome for me too. It's selfishly I just feel like I've gotten to know you on a whole deeper level from this conversation. Even though we have had like several very like deeply involved conversations prior to this. We have. Yeah and I want to say I recognize the gift you are giving people through this work. And through doing this interview with you, I can intimately and personally experience it. And it is a major gift. So thank you. Thanks for that, Jackson. Are there any final words you want to uh, leave the audience with? You don't mean words of wisdom, do you? However you want to take that. (laughs) Um, Not really, no. That I said words of wisdom shows that 
I mean, on some level there was that impulse. Uh, I was also just mining to see if that was, if that was what you meant. Um, and I often hear that kind of closure in podcasts, right? You know, if you're a person out there struggling with this, here's what you should do. <laughs> yeah. I really don't, I really don't believe in that though. Um, not anymore. As I was talking about earlier, I believe that each experience is uniquely yet totally valid and it will lead the subject um, where they are meant to go. And I have a faith in that. So I hope that whoever's listening, you have been touched by something that Danny and I shared or explored and that maybe you can bow into this trust in and love for your own experience. So maybe there is some advice, even if I'm self-conscious about it. Amazing. We got to it. (laughs) Thanks, Jackson. Thank you, Danny. It was a true pleasure. Um, Yeah, I'm honored to have been a part of it. Awesome. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Soul Stories podcast. These conversations are very special to me. After each one, I feel more connected to myself and the community our team is building. I hope you are able to walk out with something for your own life and the journey you are on. I would love and greatly appreciate if you could leave a review or share this episode with someone you care about. It all helps Soul Stories grow and make the impact we hope to make. Until next time, this is Danny signing off.